Hi, I'm Mitch. And I'm Mel. This is Policy Talks. Welcome to Policy Talks, a show diving into all things related to policy analysis in international affairs. Mitch and Mel, coming back at you in 2017. This would be our first episode together in it season is. three. So welcome back to the studio. Welcome back to you, Mitch. Well, I'm you. very excited. Me too. <laughs> so this podcast, if you've been listening for a while, it's largely focused on policy in an international context. But in truth, there are a plethora of domestic policy issues that that are worthy of exploration. And in today's episode, we're focusing on the interrelation between two pertinent domestic issues as we examine the existing policy framework to address mental health in Indigenous communities in Canada. That's right, Mitch. And Indigenous people in Canada do face several challenges with regard to mental health. Deaths by suicide and self-harm continue to affect First Nations, Inuit, and Métis youth at a rate disproportionately higher than they do the rest of the population. For example, First Nations youth are five to seven times more likely than the rest of the population to die by suicide. And then the Inuit youth suicide rate is 11 times the national average. Now, the Trudeau government originally invested about $300 million in Indigenous mental health initiatives and also promised an additional $69 million over three years in 2016. In addition to this, Minister of Health Jane Philpott promised $9 million to Inuit suicide prevention in August of the same year. Here's the thing, though. These promises, they've been highly contested because of a lack of structure and organization and delivery. There seems to be a kind of absence of clear objectives, timelines, and reporting responsibilities. For Indigenous people, the services are lacking, and counseling and treatment is often not culturally appropriate. An example is the failure of counseling or treatment to address intergenerational trauma. So this is a situation where there's a, a gap between intentions and outcomes, and it sparked debates about the effectiveness of the government's policies and their implementation. So today we're going to discuss potential causes and effects of the current situation regarding Indigenous mental health in Canada. Now, our first guest today is Mimi Chakraborty. Mimi holds a master's degree in human rights from the University of Vienna. And over the past few years, she's cultivated a broad range of experience working for and partnering with international organizations and NGOs to pursue projects involving policy analysis and critical communications. Her most recent research endeavors brought her back to Canada, where she sought to apply her special interest in women's rights issues to the nationwide phenomenon of missing and murdered Indigenous women from an access to justice angle. In continuing her work with Indigenous women's organizations, she is now exploring the different ways in which a unique set of social problems are impacting health outcomes for Indigenous women and youth. Her prior experiences working with the Canadian government have been helpful in her search for responses to relevant policy and program development challenges. So today she'll be sharing her insights with us, not as a representative of any organization, but as an independent researcher and academic. All right. So Mimi, thank you for being on the show with us tonight. Thank you for having me. So uh, I'd like to just jump right in um, and talking about the prevalence of, of suicide 
in indigenous communities across the right. country. I was hoping you'd be able to give us a sense of the depth of this problem. Has this been a more recent development or have suicide rates always been this high across indigenous communities and only now is it is it gaining uh, greater awareness in the media? Well, um, I think there are a lot of issues at play that have been going on for a very long time. I mean, it's no secret that several of the issues are cross-cutting. Uh, so we have seen over the past few decades sort of a growing media attention on uh, relevant factors. So many Indigenous health workers, they use the term social determinants of health, and I don't think this is anything that's particularly new. It's, it's more the case that literature has sort of evolved uh, to show kind of a transition over time, that it's, it's a matter of growing importance. And of course, if we're situating it in the context of suicide epidemics that we're seeing, obviously, uh, Atua Piscat was a big, um, it blew up over the media. Uh, you know, it, it sort of speaks to the number of social factors that have significant but historically understated impacts on the prevailing standards of wellness across these communities. So, I mean, mental health in particular, as far as I've seen, it's it's especially susceptible to many influencing factors, you know, including poverty, unemployment, food security, lack of housing, violence and abuse, and so on. And I feel like many of these Indigenous communities that are particularly affected by this, this sort of problem, they've been historically ravaged by this oppressive colonization, and there's still a sort of wide-ranging spectrum of unresolved traumas that continue to resonate across today's generation. And I think it's practically impossible to comprehend uh, the, the present-day problems without considering this historical context. Um, if you take, for example, the prevalence of child sexual abuse uh, in a number of Indigenous communities, it isn't something that's sufficiently discussed with a view to developing specific and relevant uh, trauma-informed supports. And it, it's not even something that's particularly new, you know, historically, this has been going on for a long time. It's just, I think now we're sort of seeing the rise of um, kind of, again, as I said, media attention, but also, you know, on a political level, the sort of growth of an impetus to reach out and address these problems in a more targeted manner. Um, yeah, and, and I feel that whether or not the approaches right now are effective, that's another story, but I'm going to wager a guess that there are further questions more specific to that point. Yes, and you mentioned some of the mm -hmm. the cross-cutting issues and, and how important right. it is to acknowledge that they do intersect with this issue of mental health. Could you expand a little bit more on, on some of the crucial linkages between mental health and, and some of these other issues? I know you mentioned uh, child, child abuse. Uh, yeah. What about housing or education? Do these intersect to create uh, some of the significant challenges that Indigenous communities have to face? Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think, as I said, um, it, it's really, I feel that these links are sort of talked about, but when it comes to actually bringing them forward in a policy development perspective, um, there are a lot of implementation challenges, you know. Uh, so... One thing I've seen, like, for example, with, with child sexual abuse, um, and this is just from 
you know, just from research, uh, it's it's often the case that these matters are so sensitive that it's difficult to speak about them publicly. And, and this sort of problem of sensitivity is exacerbated in a lot of cultural contexts. So people don't really necessarily want to be reading that poster about something uncomfortable because it sort of brings out a sense of trauma. And there's always that a little bit of a risk of uh, re-traumatization when efforts are made to address the issue locally in affected communities. So that risk needs to be carefully mitigated. This could mean, um, <clears throat> you know, ha- developing a sort of careful and informed rationale for, for activities, you know, around raising awareness. Um, there's, of course, several other things. So um, precarious uh, socioeconomic conditions, for example, can also be detrimental to mental health. Um, when there's a, a limited scope for upward mobility in life or low chances of freedom from racialized or sexualized violence, the toll on mental well-being uh, can be immense. And of course, like historically, you have this upheaval of traditional values and cultural practices. Um, so the prevalence of pro- poverty and unemployment uh, doesn't help because it's it's really eroded the sense of identity and purpose for many indigenous peoples. And, and this also, you know, incites uh, certain behaviors and often can lead to other problems like substance abuse, which, again, it's sort of like it starts a sort of cyclical process of, of violence and abuse. And can, of course, this extends to self-harm where we, and that's where we, tie into, you know, the problems of suicide occurring, especially among youth. Keeping in line with the the cultural um, right. specifics in Indigenous communities, I mean, mm-hmm. mental health is already a, a highly stigmatized um, issue. Yes, um, yes. In your opinion, mm-hmm. are, there, are there specificities in Indigenous communities that kind of, I guess, exacerbate the, the stigmatism with mental health? Is it is it more difficult in Indigenous communities um, to talk about mental health issues? Right. Um, well, I think, I, I think it's more a matter of um, creating opportunities and spaces where mental health supports can be availed by the people who need them in uh, Indigenous communities that are particularly affected. It's maybe not... I guess I guess what I'm trying to say is it's the fact of uh, living in an indigenous community that already makes it a very specific kind of problem. You have the social sort of marginalization, so there aren't often uh, adequate supports for you know mental health resources that are provided in the first place. So it's not only a matter of um, you know combating the stigma that generally exists around mental health issues, but it's also a matter of uh, getting the reaching sort of the priority populations. Like, again, as I mentioned, in, um, Inuit, uh, First Nations, and Métis youth that are particularly affected by it, they are the ones who need to know that supports exist and uh, they can reach out to uh, the thing. But that's the problem is a lot of the time accessibility um, is not there to a sufficient level 
sometimes it's it's just a matter of uh, no funded services or a lack of healthcare workers that are uh, going up to, for example, you know, remote northern isolated communities, um, and that is sort of a, a a fact of being in a, a specific community. It's it's simply part of the experience of living in a community like that that you you have fewer resources to turn to. Absolutely. Uh, let's shift over to talking about the current approach by mm-hmm. uh, the federal government. So right. in your opinion, what do you think has made the current approach so ineffective or at least perceived to be so ineffective? And, and do you, how do you think the development of a national strategy might help? Mm-hmm. Well, um, in my opinion, I guess I would say uh, effectiveness or maybe lack thereof in this context is best measured sort of quantitatively. Um, we don't even need to get into the nitty-gritty of the numbers to, to even just appreciate the fact that Indigenous rates of suicide remain significantly higher than non-Indigenous rates of suicide. So some Indigenous groups in particular have shocking statistics, like especially you know when they're considered relatively. So suicide rates among Inuit youth in Canada, for example, are placed at 11 times the national average, which is among the highest in the world. So now there's often concerns that government-funded projects and programs are being duplicated or not producing tangible outcomes. So the thing is, responses to such concerns can involve bureaucratic complications that sort of slow the process of launching urgently needed regional uh, projects. So there needs to be more effective and efficient coordination between uh, or among uh, government agents and non-state actors. Um, maybe even more than a national strategy, perhaps like a consolidated system of information and resources connecting and updating all involved parties working in the field could be tremendously beneficial. Maybe the solution is ultimately a technological one in this sense, you know, keeping all engaged stakeholders updated in a streamlined and equitable way that can also help mitigate sort of the political backlash uh, we see when there's failure to consult this party or that at any given time. You know what I mean. Absolutely. That's a good point. And just to follow up on that, uh, on our current Mm -hmm. approach, would you say that the current, uh, the way the government's currently handling things reflects stakeholder consultations with uh, the indigenous communities that are at most risk? Oh, well, that's uh, that's a tricky one because I feel like there is the effort and sort of the impetus, mm-hmm. um, but whether or not uh, all the voices are being heard, that's, I think, a different story. I mean, if I'm to speak kind of in a broad sense, I would just say that I feel like the circle sort of needs to be expanded, especially when we're, we're thinking about how can... Um, suicide prevention and mental health strategies be enhanced, we need to always keep in mind that cultural competency is vital to the to the entire endeavor. So um, in order to achieve it, we need to look at the regional specificities. And that's not going to be possible on a policy level um, or a legislative level of any kind if we don't have the right voices at the table. So um, again, as I said, it, it's a matter of sort of bringing together uh, the important uh, players in the game, you know, and 
sometimes, well, as far as I've seen, not everybody is even invited to the table. So those voices that don't get heard, um, that sort of speaks to the certain community needs that are not even being addressed because they haven't been brought to light at all. Again, with in the sense of the very community-level sort of uh, specific problems. Are we, as a nation, mm-hmm. trending in the right direction on this? And, and I ask that in the sense that, of course, you know, the figures that you mentioned and, and Mel mentioned earlier as well, they're, they're mm-hmm. completely unacceptable. Um, and this isn't a, a question of, well, if we see a, a slight reduction, then, you know, that, that is a sign of, 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 of um, celebration. But I guess I'm asking, given our long, long history of, of poor treatment of our indigenous populations, I remember when the, mm-hmm. the current government was first elected, um, my understanding was that in indigenous communities, it was well received as a as a kind of a, a positive development and, and, and a, a new approach for greater uh, inclusivity and, and greater right. ability to listen and learn and bring right. the appropriate people to the table. Has that been reflected uh, uh, in in this um, aspect in terms of of developing a, a better strategy, or has it been more of the same? Well. Um... Look, it's it's always going to be a challenge to kind of address complex issues like this in a sort of top-down way. Um, I don't know that I can I can talk about sort of uh, specific kind of allocations of what what should be done, what shouldn't be done. But sometimes it's the case that you know, when high-level budgets are being drawn up and passed down for execution of grassroots health work because that general commitment has been made, sometimes, again, it's just the fact of the matter is that the specificities of regional needs are not being met. And the repercussions of this can sort of resonate negatively with uh, members of communities affected by suicide epidemics and related problems. And this compounds the sort of social problems of marginalization, isolation, and, you know, these things that are commonly felt in many of these communities. But, um, yeah, I mean, I think it's really a matter of also showing that uh, they want all the voices to be heard. So, um, for example, I was very surprised um, and disappointed to find that uh, the Inuit, uh, there was no Inuit representation for um, the inquiry on missing and murdered women. That's a separate issue, but it, in a way, it sort of it sort of reflected, you know, across these many issues that are faced by Indigenous communities. It's just where is the where is the concrete representation that's being pushed for? Um, you need to have this sort of impartial advisory committees, but also the, uh, the actual representatives from these different organizations. And I think um, if we're talking about really making good on those commitments, um, relevant activities surrounding mental health and suicide prevention, they need to be embedded in national and international human rights law and other uh, pertinent guidelines. That way they can take on more meaning and urgency or that's the hope or the idea anyway. I mean, some good examples can include 
the Truth and Reconciliation Committee's calls to action, which, uh, as we know, the federal government has committed to uphold. You have uh, calls 19, 22, 55. They all contain explicit references to making progress uh, in terms of closing gaps between Indigenous and non-Indigenous health outcomes. Um, And, you know, more broadly, uh, Section 35 of the Canadian Constitution, um, although it has admittedly contentious value in the daily lives of uh, Indigenous people, it's expected to serve as a um, robust complement to the evolving landscape of status and rights for Indigenous people. Um, and and these, these sorts of documents, they just need to kind of be upheld in a more concrete way, you know, we have we have all these. It's there, sort of. It, it's there in the architecture, um, and and that's just nationally. If we look internationally, we also have the UNDRIP, so that's the United Nations uh, Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. It was only officially adopted by Canada last year, which is nearly a decade after the General Assembly adopted it. And uh, as far as I can recall, uh, articles. 21, 23, 24, and 29, they all discuss these rights and standards related to Indigenous health in particular. And then they provide general remarks on state responsibility. It's, it's not that these documents, you know, these articles, these provisionary measures aren't being referenced. It's more that their importance and continued relevance needs to be reinforced periodically in meaningful ways, you know, so that we can have more clear, effective, targeted responses uh, to the persisting issues. Now, we've talked about how complex this issue and how many uh, components are involved and different actors. What mm-hmm. do you think a good multidimensional approach to solving these mental health issues in these Indigenous communities would look like? Right. Um, well, I think uh, we've already established that there are several factors you know, contributing to the status of of uh, mental health in Indigenous right. communities. Uh, I guess a multidimensional approach would seek to sort of address them on the levels at which they occur. So socially, culturally, legally, politically, and clinically. So socially and culturally, um, community-based action is vital. Federal, provincial, and territorial governance administrations, they have to seek to provide a kind of unified message reaffirming uh, that affected members of Indigenous communities are a valued part of the national fabric and must be able to access the mental health supports they need. This will involve um, targeting resource availability and the fight against stigma in productive ways. I find it particularly important that there ha- there is um, an ongoing impetus for early learning and development, so to incorporate issues of mental health into school curricula for Indigenous students, teaching Indigenous youth self-help techniques and um, ensuring the availability of uh, local resources or support networks in a, in a classroom setting. That seems essential. We've already talked a little bit about the legal aspects, like it, the constitutional framework has to sort of be applied to regional healthcare strategies and we have to have the federal powers, um, you know, sort of taking ownership of their fiduciary responsibilities 
in context of breaking down barriers of inaccessibility and marginalization. Politically, um, as I sort of touched on earlier, at least the primary high-level representatives across the different indigenous regions need to be invited to advocacy gatherings with federal ministers so they can bring forward the voices of their community. You have to have sort of an innovative uh, way to, to increase accessibility um, of healthcare supports, and, and these supports need to be vetted for cultural competency, which may include uh, specialized training for mental health support staff. I mean, none of these are surprising in a standalone sense. What's important to recognize is that it's the multidimensional approach that is needed, meaning an effective solution to the suicide epidemics, for instance, will undoubtedly uh, compromise a multiplicity of such considerations at these different levels. That's fantastic, Mimi. Thank you for for sharing your, your views and your perceptions on this critical issue. My pleasure. We're going to take a quick break, but when we return, we will have more on this topic with our second guest, Jen Jeffries. You're listening to Policy Talks Podcast, recorded at CKCU 93.1 FM. For more, go to www.policytalkspodcast.com. And we're back, and we have with us now Jen Jeffries who is a consultant of communications and political columnist at The Hill Times. She has worked with the Assembly of First Nations, the Native Women's Association of Canada, and the New Democratic Party of Canada. Her work has been published by Vice, Power and Influence Magazine, and iPolitics. All right, so we have Jen Jeffries here. Jen, thank you so much for joining us for the chat today. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I know it's great to have you to share your views on this issue. So let's jump right in. Let's... Let's talk about when it when it comes to addressing mental health issues in indigenous communities, what would be the appropriate division of jurisdictional responsibilities? Um, we're talking between the federal and the provincial sorry, the federal and the provincial governments, since you know health is technically a provincial responsibility and then indigenous indigenous relations lays with the federal government. Wow, so that's a super tough question, really hard to answer and I, it's, it's hard because that actually in and of itself is meant to, one of the many reasons why I think there is such a problem and such a holdup in many cases in getting the money flowing out to Indigenous communities who need it on the ground now. Um, like, it's pretty obvious there's, there's epidemics happening, there's suicide crises, there's lack of, lack of running water, um, there's been healthcare problems, discrepancies in the quality of healthcare reaching Indigenous communities for decades. We know that. Um, but the reality is that, at least as it, as it goes for First Nations, um, First Nations, because of the Indian Act, um, are a responsibility of the federal government. And unfortunately, we know that bureaucracy is not 
the most efficient mechanism by which funds flow um, to places that need them or to people or communities that desperately need them. And therefore, uh, in a lot of cases, uh, particularly with the reserves, there's more than 630 First Nations reserves across the country, um, we're just not getting the money that we need, <laughs> or they rather are not getting the money that they need and that they desperately need, despite being in abject poverty and third world conditions in a first world country. It's, it's absurd. It's heartbreaking. Um, so I don't know who really should shoulder the responsibility. Um, but I know right now the responsibility primarily falls on the federal government uh, or the Trudeau liberal government specifically. Um, and the money is just not flowing. Um, and that's a problem. So, in terms of of the government approach, and both at the the federal and and the provincial level, hopefully working in unison, although um, perhaps that is not the case currently, how can moving forward, as we analyze existing policies, how can governments be strategic uh, in enhancing preventative programs in, in communities that are the most at risk of suicides? Now, of course, the conditions in, in, in indigenous communities across the country are are poor uh, by any measure. But we Definitely. do know we do know as well that in terms of you know this, this epidemic of suicides that it's not it's not equal amongst all communities. Some communities, for whatever reason, um, sees a higher number of of suicides or suicide attempts than others. Is there a way for for the governments to be strategic in how they allocate resources to try and address this issue of mental health and specifically suicides in the most effective way possible? Well, I don't know. I mean, I'm sure if there was one easy, you know, rapid solution, we would have seen that by now, of course, right? Uh, There was in total $8.4 billion uh, set aside by... Uh, our current liberal government to rectify or to to solve uh, the many many problems that Indigenous communities are facing, including health care, including um, mental health care, and and uh, you know tendencies towards suicide and the suicide epidemic. Um, but so much of that money isn't flowing yet, as I said, um, and that's evident in communities like Wapatika. I'm probably pronouncing that wrong. But in northern Ontario, um, where we saw two innocent, beautiful, young First Nations girls end their lives, tragically, um, at a really young age, very young. Like, they were both under 12. I think one was 12 and one was 10. Um, And that was just a case of just sheer negligence uh, or just failure to act fast enough um, on the part of both the government government itself, so the elected, you know, liberal government and the bureaucracy, so the various bureaucracies that that the money comes from, so primarily Health Canada um, and Indigenous and Northern Affairs Canada. So when different federal bodies or departments or institutions, public institutions are fighting over where money should come from or who should, you know, cough up the dollar and, you know, lives are in the balance, there's a problem, right? And that problem needs to Needs to be solved. Like I, it's it's absurd that that there would be bickering between jurisdictions, uh, per, whether they be provincial or federal or municipal or different leaders, band councils. That just shouldn't be happening when 
there's children contemplating suicide. I mean, that's when you know there's a serious, serious problem, there's an epidemic uh, that needs to be solved. So then, in your opinion, are these these jurisdictional, this jurisdictional infighting, so to speak, is that absolutely, the, absolutely? Is, I mean, and that's where uh, I mean the best person to speak to about that specific issue would be Cindy Blackstock, who's the executive director of the First Nations Child and Family Caring Society, um, and or the Assembly of First Nations. Those two organizations are the reason that Jordan's principle um, exists. Well, actually, it's Jordan River Anderson, who died tragically while the province, the provincial government and the federal government were fighting over who should pay for his health care needs. Um, and then he died without ever spending a night at home. He, he lived his whole life in the hospital, uh, knocking on death's door, uh, while his family were pleading with different uh, public services for the funds to him alive or to help him live a quality life uh, and then he died in hospital it was it was awful um, and that's why Jordan's principle was created the federal government right now is supposed to be enacting that principle by law and supposed to be practicing that principle and they're not I can't speak to that principle or that concept at length I'm not an expert by any stretch Cindy Blackstock would be the right person to go to for that but it's a tragedy and it's frankly a national embarrassment that we're not doing something, <laughs> you know, that these things are still happening, that you see two innocent young girls die uh, before they even hit their team because different jurisdictions or, you know, different individuals are refusing to, are passing the buck and refusing to take responsibility and help. It's, it's tragic. Are there other important barriers that should be acknowledged that can explain why the situation is as it is um, beyond just jurisdictional infighting? Are there other other key reasons that we can point to or key factors that we can point to and say, this is why, you know, funding is not going well, where it's supposed to? Uh, well, as it pertains to funding, uh, no. I mean, it's not an obvious causal factor. I mean, it's it's symptomatic of, of a number of different things, historical problems, you know, like colonialism, racism, sexism, the, socio- the socioeconomic divide. Uh, there's, there's so many causes and factors that this issue stems from that it's hard to just point to one thing and say, this is the cause. This is the reason that there's a monetary discrepancy in the way that First Nations children and people are helped versus the rest of the Canadian population. It's, there's no obvious solution. And if there was an obvious or sorry, there's no obvious cause, and if there was an obvious cause, we likely would have solved the problem by now. The reality is that the government has claimed that they want to, that they care, and that they want to address this issue, but I think that it's only just dawning on them the weight or the, you know, the the gravity of the situation, the reality that this is, this is an enormous problem, you know, that they cannot, like, no one can flip a switch and fix overnight it, it needs to be it's gonna it's gonna cost a lot of money it's gonna cost a lot of time and it's gonna take the government and bureaucracies and a lot of people who don't want to change to look in the mirror and really acknowledge you know there's problems here there's systemic racism that needs to be undone how do you think innovative methods like telecounseling services 
could enhance the government's ability to respond to mental health issues in these communities? Like, do you think this would be a, uh, such services would be effective, or what's your take on that? Well, I I think they're certainly effective um, as long as they're accessible um, and they're promoted or marketed and shared with the communities that they're intended to impact effectively. So the First Nations and Inuit uh, Health, I believe it's called the Mental Wellness Line, uh, that was enacted or implemented this year, um, I understand has been fairly effective, um, but it may or may not have been broadcast in, a, in an effective way to all the, the people in the communities that needed to know about it or that need to use it. And I'm not sure... Uh, well, actually, once just to experiment, I called the line myself to see whether someone answered immediately, and they did. Um, so I was really impressed by that. So if that's the case, and these are, these are effective things being implemented, that's great. Maybe we should have more of those, and we should be making it as clear and transparent as we possibly can with communities like Wapakika and others um, that these, these services are available to them. So I think, you know, what somebody, I mean, I can't speak for everyone who's in crisis. Everyone's different. Everyone's, you know, version of a crisis or everyone's reasons for contemplating suicide are different, but, you know, people just need a place to go. They just need, you know, a reason to have hope and to be happy and to live. And, you know, as long as they have someone to talk to, I think that makes a huge difference. So, yeah, certainly, I mean, telehealth services could be effective, I'm sure. And on a global scale, if we're, if we're trying to, to think of solutions or, or positive changes that can be made in existing policy frameworks, is there anything to your knowledge internationally that Canada can emulate, perhaps from other governments, to try and a, address the mental health issues in these remote communities, but, but two, with the knowledge that there are complexities specific to Indigenous populations. Is there anything that Canada can emulate from other countries, to your knowledge? I honestly, I'm not an expert on international efforts. But in, ter- and in terms of, you know, reconciliation efforts or, you know, really valuing Indigenous peoples and what they mean and how they can contribute to society, I actually believe Canada is ahead of the curve on that. I don't know that any federal government or prime minister or president has has been so, you know, serious or I, like whether he's serious or not, I don't know. But been so basically vocal in their in their dedication or their their plan to reconcile relations with Indigenous people. So really, I don't know that there is any other country to compare Canada to in that. Yeah, and I, I'm certainly not an expert on that. I think, you know, I think we're doing somewhat okay jobs, um, and I don't really know of any other country that's trying. We're, uh, we're nearing the end of our time here, Jen, but I did want to put this to you because I know, you know, you've mentioned that this is something that you're very passionate about, um, and you've certainly identified some areas um, where going forward, I think, a collective effort at the provincial and the federal level and even at the municipal level, um, we can we can make positive change. But if you could, are there maybe, if you could be at the table and help to, and let's say you're at the table and and the Minister of Indigenous Affairs is there and perhaps the Prime Minister is there, um, and you had 10 minutes with them, what would you try and emphasize to them in terms of, uh, here are the key points, the key maybe two or three points that you really need to explore to address the issue of mental health in Indigenous communities in a more effective way? Well, first of all, I would never want to be that person. (laughs) 
because I didn't grow up on a reserve. Um, I'm not living in abject poverty. I'm not a kid. I'm 28. I'm almost 29. Um, I think that the person who should be having that conversation with the Prime Minister, or the people rather, should be the ones with that lived experience who are currently in that situation. So, you know, First Nations children, for example, are the fastest growing segment of the Canadian population. Um, and Canada has been leaving generation after generation of First Nations, Inuit, and Métis children behind um, since time immemorial. Like, we, we've been, you know, alienating Indigenous people in so many ways for so long. Yeah, I think the best people who can speak to this issue are the youth themselves. They, the answers lie in the youth. They know what they want. They know what they need. It's certainly not canoe storage, like Trudeau said during his his, list, his so-called listening tour, it's, you know, it's, they know what they want. Uh, in many cases, it's, it's a school, it's a, it's a hospital, it's a warm bed at night. Uh, it's a lot of different things. Um, you know, they're smart, they know what they need, and the government should be listening to them and no one else, I, uh, in my opinion, or at least hearing them first. That's my opinion. And you know what, I think that's excellent insight. Um, and I think that certainly speaks to, to, um, part of the problem here, um, I think often, you know, when it comes to uh, Indigenous relations, we talk past each other or we don't. And our previous guest, um, Mimi, also raised this. You know, getting the right people at the table is so crucial yes. to addressing this issue. Um, and perhaps, Absolutely. And I mean, in all due respect to the National Indigenous Organizations and Indigenous leadership and so on, I mean, they're all wonderful, well-intentioned people. But, you know, when we're talking about youth, contemplating suicide, wouldn't it make sense to talk to those youth contemplating suicide and ask them why they're contemplating that and what they needed, like what what they need in order to be happy? Like, would that not make sense to you? I mean, that it seems absurd to me not to want to talk to those people firsthand. Like, that's, to me, that's the solution. Absolutely. I, don't, I, I think both of us um, sitting here, it's hard to disagree with that. I think that's 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 absolutely spot on. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, Jen Jeffries, we we thank you very much for taking the time to speak with us today on a, a very important issue, and we we certainly value um, the insight that you've been able to share with us. My pleasure. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Thank you for listening to Policy Talks. Remember to visit us at policytalkspodcast.com and on Twitter at policytalkspod for updates and related content. If you have any feedback, comments, or suggestions, we'd love to hear from you. Send us an email or reach us on Facebook or Twitter. And as always, we'd like to give a special thanks to our research team who put this episode together. Eugene So, Sheta Ali, Juhi Sohani, of course, our audio technician, Megan Bojali, and as always, our wonderful producer, Joe Venkatesh. Until next time, I'm Mitch. And I'm Mel. This is Policy Talks. Thank you.